Like it or not, Yeshua taught Hasidic Judaism before Hasidic Judaism was even a thing. If you hope to make a point, then you better rely upon primary and secondary sources and not YouTube theology. Did not Yeshua say Yeshuot v'yelachim is of the Yehudim? When Hashem says in Deuteronomy to listen to the rulings of the Sanhedrin or the penalty of death, I don't think he was kidding. If you're a sacred namer, a two-house theologian, a chirite, a one-Torah theologian, and you reject the rabbis and the sages, get ready to have your foundation be rocked. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to uh, this week's Parsha study for Parsha's Pukas. And... Um, well, uh, let's go ahead and get started in prayer as we go and we uh, journey through this week's Torah portion. Okay? Blessed are you, Lord our God, Master of the universe, who has sanctified us in the words of your Torah, Father. I ask, Father, that you be with each and every single one of us as we go through your parshas here this week, Father, and as we go throughout our week, that we all have a Shavuot Tov, that we all have a good week, and that it is that you help us in order to grow with you, Father, that you help us to grow in our obedience to you, Father, that you help us to grow in all the ways that it is that you have destined us to grow in your ways, Father, and in your light and within that of your Torah, through that of your Mashiach, Yeshua. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach, Amen, Hallelujah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this week is Parshish Chokash. And uh, what I'm going to be focusing in here on today is the very first verse. And um, we're actually going to break down some sacred cows today. We're going to get rid of some sacred cows, okay? And... Um, well, before we get into that, let's just go ahead and read from the Torah portion here. And a part of the verse says this. It says, Zohot chokat hatara asher ziva Hashem lemor daber el b'nei Yisrael. God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu and to Aharon, saying that this is the supernal commandment of the Torah, which God commanded saying, tell the children of Israel. Now, the within your English translations, it says that he spoke to to uh, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu and to Aharon. That is not something that we end up seeing within that of the Hebrew. That's not written on that side, but it's implied there. Um, the English portion that I have over here is from the Targumim, okay, the Aramaic Targums. And one of the nice things about the Aramaic Targums is that it kind of works as almost like a Jewish amplified Bible because the 
Jewish people understood when they put together the Targums in, in the Aramaic. And the nice thing is that on in the Gutnach Chomish over here on this side of the page, we actually have the Masoretic text as opposed to the Targums, but the translation is from the Targums. You know, that can seem kind of confusing, but however, it's, it, it, it actually helps us out a great deal. Because one of the things that the people understood when they translated the Targums is that, first of all, that there is such a thing as Hashkafa. There is such a thing as worldview. And that, basically, many premises can be taken out of context or taken into a different context based upon region, time period, and so on and so forth. In fact, they'd already seen this happen, you know, during their times as they were putting together the Targums in um, the uh, uh, 2nd century B.C., Okay, so the thing is that they understood that this was going on. And so with the Targums, what they ended up doing is going and um, making sure that things were implied in the translation into Aramaic. Okay, so that's why it is that we see when I was reading this, you don't hear me mention Moshe Robenu, You don't hear me mention Aharon whenever it is that we read uh, 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 uh Zot Chokat HaTorah Asher Ziva Hashem Lemor Daber El Bnei Yisrael. Okay? Now, why is it that I bring up the Hebrew here? Why is the Hebrew so important? Well, first of all, the name of the Torah portion is Chokat. It can also be rendered in some places based upon gr grammar as Chokim. We've seen the word Chokim mentioned many times within that of the Torah. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to go back, and I wasn't planning on this, so I'm going to find it here. I believe it's chapter 26 of the book of Genesis, verse 5. Yes, and it says, and reading from the Targums, it says, And this, because Abraham listened to my voice when I tested him, he guarded my secondary prohibitions that protect a person from transgressing biblical prohibitions, my rational commandments, my super-rational commandments, and my instructions in the Yarl Torah. Okay? Now, the word that is used there uh, at the end, it actually doesn't say Torah it actually says Torotai, okay? Which uh, we find the word Torotai and Torot and Toritiv. These things change based upon grammar and all these things, sentence structure. But we see that being mentioned several times through that of the Torah Shebektav, okay? And whenever you have that, you have a plural form of Torah. So what we have happening within that of Genesis chapter 26, verse 5 there, is we see this idea coming together of the fact that, first of all, there are different categories of Torah law, absolutely. There are different categories, but also, at the same time, there are different collections of Torah law, okay? How does this relate to the first verse within that of the Torah? I'm going to get to that, okay? But we're laying down the, found work, the, the framework here. We're laying down the foundation. Now, some of you had ended up hearing me go and teaching over at the uh, conference over in, uh, over in Spartanburg the other day. We got to broadcast that live and that was a lot of fun uh really enjoyed doing that and um had a lot of you guys listen in as, as a matter of fact i think the darn thing ended up getting uh during the live stream it ended up getting shared like somewhere around somewhere close to 100 times and all that stuff and then we took that one down and put up the 
the recorded version with a little bit better audio quality um, afterwards. And uh, the thing about it, though, is you guys remember me talking about the importance of the Tara, how it is that we don't have a Messiah, we don't even have a New Testament if we don't have the Tara. Or we could be talking about Tara today, not, not necessarily. But the thing is that we have to understand in terms of the body of Tara law, whenever we say Tara, there are different groups of people that take it into different ideas as to what exactly Tara is. Now, the thing that we'll start out with is, for instance, the Hebrew Roots Movement. Okay, The Hebrew Roots Movement and many in the Messianic faith, they are solely, major, a majority of them, not all of them, are solely totally the written Torah, okay? They'll accept things from the oral Torah in terms of, you know, their Seder, you know, the way they do the Zitzit, to some extent, if they don't do belt loop Zitzit, if they actually, you know, in terms of the actual ties, you know, and all that stuff, how many times it's tied and all that stuff, that comes from oral Torah. You know, many of them wear, may wear a kippah. You know, that's something from oral Torah. Or may, they may even have a, um, a talit gadol, you know, that they wear in, in to their assembly. That, again, is oral Torah. So, you know, and plus the entire concepts of Mashiach, we find, are not within Torah Shebek Tav, but they're in Torah Shebek So we even see that, even unknowingly, the Hebrew Roots Movement, and many in the Messianic faith, who claim to be solely Torah Shebek Tav, totally the written Torah, they've adopted all many of these concepts of Torah Shebek as well. But see, also within that group, they also don't know Hebrew. It's kind of funny. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement, but they don't know Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> because if they did, they would end up seeing that this term, Torotai, or Torotiv, or Torot, found all throughout that of the Torah Shebek which deal with bodies of Torah law. And so for the Hebrew Roots Movement, a majority of them, and the Messianic faith, they claim that Torah represents that of Torah Shebek Okay? Now, within that of Orthodox Judaism... We tend to see Torah as being, first of all, Torah Shebektav, the written Torah, Torah Shebeyape, the oral Torah, and Chazel, okay? Because different sects of Judaism have their founders of their faith, you know, and all that stuff, founders of the ones that, you know, have brought about Orthodox Judaism, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, be it the way of Breslev or Chabad, conservative Judaism, and they all have their own sages. They all have Chazel for their sages that say, okay, that basically this is the framework in which it is you guys are going to work in. And so with that, Torah is Torah Shebektav, Torah Shebiape, and Chazel. Now, what about us that are a part of Lapid Judaism and who are believers in Yeshua the Messiah? What is it that, how is it that we should properly classify Torah law? I say it is this. I say it is, first of all, Torah Shebektav, Torah Shebiyapeg, and Torah HaChaim, the living Torah, the living Torah. We have to add all three of those together because of the fact that we mentioned several times that the Maharala Prague goes and tells us that a complete entity is made up of three parts. And we see from Psalm 119 that the Torah is complete and that the Torah is perfect. Okay, so in order for that to be the case, then however, it has to be made up of three parts. The written, well, the written, the oral, 
and the living. It has to be all three of those. Now, Chazel, we'll take note of Chazel as well, because today, even today, we're going to be looking at the Maharal. We're going to be looking at Rebbe Nachman. We're going to be looking as well at, um, let's see, Rashi, Rambam, uh, Bier, Mayim, Chaim. We're going to be looking at all these things here today. And we're also going to be looking at some of the people who are um, very good scholars within that of the Messianic faith. We're going to be looking at uh, some of the things that it is the first fruits of Zion has to say in terms of this in there. We're going to take slight disagreement with them, but however, you know, about 90% of the time I agree with these cats. You know, um, they're very good scholars. And so, again, we're going to come back to this concept of Chokim. What exactly this Chokat or Chokas, depending upon if you're Ashkenaz or Sephardi, what exactly is this? Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the words of the Maharala Prague. Because he goes and talks about these three kinds of Torah law that we end up finding that we mentioned within that of the book of Bereshit, or Genesis chapter 26, verse 5, which deal with Chokim, which is the same as Chokat, Mishpatim, and Mitzvot. Okay? This is what the Maharal says. Okay? The Maharal says, the three pieces of advice of the Great Assembly also fortify three categories of Torah law. Mishpatim, Chokim, and Mitzvos. He says the Mishpatim are laws that are obviously essential to the smooth functioning of society. Simple common sense can see and apply the system and method of Mishpatim. Now literally, Mishpatim means judgments. Okay? And these were, are the laws that we end up seeing Chazel deal a great deal with. We see that the Shoftim, that it is that we said we are supposed, that it says that we are supposed to listen to within Parsha Shoftim and Mishpatim. This is the majority of what it is they deal with. They make judgments based upon the functionings of Torah law and the functionings within that of the civil society to keep it civil, to keep it intact, essentially. This is what it is that they do. This is also essentially, you can liken this to the functions of our court systems in the United States, as well as our Congress and that of our, uh, our three tiers of government. This kind of operates within that of the same way. This is Mishpatim law. Then we have mitzvos, which are not intuitively grasped, unlike Mishpatim but can be organized through analysis and insight by their underlining principles. We're going to give examples of all of these as well. But then we go back to the concept of hokat or hokim. Okay? Hokim are the opposite of mishpatim. The Maharal says, they are laws which are beyond the human ability to rationalize into a system. Although... We do not know the ultimate reason that God decreed any of the commandments. We can usually posit principles that guide us to the application of the law in specific situations. Hokim defy formulating such principles and hence are difficult to arrange into a methodological system that can be practiced through the use of guidelines. Now, what are some examples within all three of these kinds of laws? Be diligent in judgment supports Mishpatim law. 
i.e. ensuring fairness and integrity in laws that deal with social issues such as torts and damages. Develop many disciples, strengthens mitzvos, the general body of Torah law. The study and analysis of many people discussing Torah among themselves helped to develop an understanding of the principles and systems behind these laws. The concept of building a fence around the Torah protects Hokim. These laws are difficult to cast into a logical system such as forbidden marriage relationships because there is no systematic principle to determine which relative that a person can marry and which he is not. One can easily consider, uh, could easily enter into a forbidden marriage. One of the earliest fences was instituted by Shlomo HaMelech by disallowing marriage to yet any relative, producing a system that is easily and reliably applied. Okay, now Rebbe Nachman of Breslev also gives a little bit of insight into this concept as well. And let me go and turn there. I did not mark it, but I'm pretty sure I know where it is. Let's hope we are. <laughs> Let's hope we do. Okay, yep, absolutely. Here's what Rebbe Nachman of Breslev says, and he says this in Lekote Halachot. He says, a hulk which is a decree, which is a singular form of chokat or chokim, is a law whose reason is not related to us, such as the laws of the red heifer or keeping kosher. Although one of the reasons for all of mitzvot are beyond our understanding, some, for some reasons for some mitzvot are revealed while others are not. Thus, we find that the mitzvah, the red heifer, purifies the impure, while at the same time defiles the pure. This is certainly impossible to understand and teaches us that all mitzvot are beyond our, 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 our comprehension. That's what it is that Rabbi Nachman says in Lekutei Halachot. Okay, so what we're doing here is we're trying to formulate and to define chukim or chukat. Hulk. We are trying to define this. And we're going to find that it's very hard to go and define and almost very impossible in many ways. You know, when the Bible goes and says decrees, we tend to think within that of our own view in the 21st century in the Western mind in terms of what it is that a decree is. Oh, you shall do this. I send out a decree. You know, that you will go and do this. But, you know, usually, you know, you say, well, why are you making us do that? Well, this is the reason why I'm making you do that. But see, with Chokim law, it's not that way. Okay, now Rashi says, because the Satan had entered the, na the nations and caused grief to the Jewish people, saying, what is this commandment? What purpose does it have? Therefore, the Torah uses the term Chok, which means supernal commandment. God says, my personal decree, you do not have permission to ponder over it. Oh, that's a very interesting view from that of Rashi. Now, the, here's what the Rambam says. The Rambam says, the nations taught or taunt the Jewish people about this mitzvah. For a similar reason, their derision of the scapegoat of Yom Kippur because it was slaughtered outside of the Holy Temple. Now, the Ber Ma'im Chaim says this. He says the source of desertion of the law is pure is that the pure person who performs the process becomes unpure, yet the pure unpure person on whom to a procedure is performed becomes pure. 
Of course, we do not find such a phenomenon in nature. Two, for example, heat softens tin and yet harden an egg, but one cannot bring proof of the nature to explain the mitzvot of God. Now, the Or HaChaim goes a little bit deeper into this. The Or HaChaim says this. He says, why does the verse use the expression, this is the supernal commandment of the Torah? The supernal commandment deals with decree, deals with chok, okay? As if to say that the mitzvah is representative of the entire Torah, because the law of ritual purity and impurity discussed here bring the light of the effect of the Torah on the Jewish people by receiving the Torah, the Jewish people become a holy people and therefore become an attraction of spiritual impurity. Thus, ironically, a Jewish body becomes ritually impure after the departure of the soul due to the body's immense holiness, which attracts impurity, rather like an empty jar of honey that attracts flies and insects. Okay? Now he goes on to say that an additional explanation by writing this the supernal commandment of the Torah, the verse is hinting that if a person observes this mitzvah, he is credited when observing the entire Torah. For observing the mitzvah, which makes no sense to all demonstrations, a person's strong faith and commitment to observe the other mitzvahs do. Okay, so what is it that we can posit from all of this? We see here that first of all, Rashi, the Rambam, Ber Mayim Chaim, and the Or HaChaim don't even, don't even agree. We don't find any citation from that of Mish, from uh, Mishnah. We find no citation from that of that of uh, Shulchan Aruch. We don't find anything that is within that of the official canon and body of Torah law. When we looked at Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, we saw what it is that he ended up saying about Chok, Chokim, Chokat. We saw what it is that he said about it. And the thing is that usually Rabbi Nachman is quoting Talmud all over the place. He's quoting the Mishnah all over the place. He doesn't do it once here. Why? Because of the fact that with the supernal commandments, the decrees, or the Hulk, Hokim, Hokat, we don't know the reasons for this. We don't know, know the reasons why it is that they had to bring a perfectly, uh, a, a, a perfectly red heifer devoid of blemish, and they had to go and sacrifice it and place the ashes in that of the of the water and then to, to go and purify the impure. Why is it that I bring this up? Because I remember probably about six, seven years ago, there was a teaching that was somewhat popular during that time. It was a, te it was a teaching by an individual that it is that I had a, at the time, at the time, not anymore, had a close personal relationship with. And um, I was a part of the two-house movement many years ago. And we used to be on the traveling circuit, circuit together, uh, me and this other teacher, as well as several others that you may have also have heard of, possibly. And uh, the big thing was that he put out this teaching about the red heifer, you know, I think it was called the mystery of the red heifer. Whenever he would go and teach on Shabbos anywhere, he'd have like 50 DVDs to sell on Shabbos on the mystery of the red heifer. Um, and so the thing is that, you know, this was an individual who didn't know Hebrew, had, had no rabbinic training whatsoever. And he saw the commandment of the red heifer to be that as like, 
you know, around around being around mitzvot or that of of um of mishpatim law, as opposed to being hok, hokat, hokim, as opposed to being what it says that it is within that of the Hebrew side of the page. The thing about it, though, is that we can look for shadows of the Messiah Yeshua in many different places within that of the Torah. And we can find them in many places. And where it is that this individual really went off the derrick and really screwed the pooch, it's trying to say that it is that he knew he knows for sure that Yeshua is indeed the red heifer sacrifice. But the thing about it though is that that doesn't fit Chokat. That doesn't fit that kind of thing because we even see the greatest Jewish sages who knew Hebrew lived in, you know, lived in Jewish, you know, uh, communities and who it is that, uh, you know, their, their entire lives were Judaism, you know, studying these things at great lengths. We see that it is that they can't even agree. That's why it is that we brought up, you know, Rashi, the Rambam, the Mayim Chaim, the, uh, the Orha Chaim. All of these things. We see that they don't even agree in terms of this whole thing with the red heifer. Now, the thing about it, though, is that I like to relate this entire idea. I don't want to go down too hard on this individual, but I am going to say this. That whenever it is that we see the story of Yosef, and Yosef is going and having dreams about all these things that are happening in the land of Mishraim, in the land of Egypt... And these dreams are happening and all these things come into fruition. And the thing about it, though, is that we see that the dreams are done in a shadow. You know, it's not necessarily saying, you know, if Joseph had a dream that there was going to be a marshmallow that blew up and all that stuff. You know, we could see the shadow of something like, you know, Hiroshima or something like that. But there wasn't a literal marshmallow. Okay. So, so, you know, so we see a shadow of this and we can posit a, an idea, okay, that this is a possibility. But we can only do so if it is that we fully study, we fully look at language, but we cannot say that this is exactly what this is. Ladies and gentlemen, I love finding parallels to the Messiah Yeshua within that of the Torah. You guys know that I do that each and every single week. You guys know that I use Tarashi Bi'alpeh and Chazel to do that very thing each and every single week. But at the same time, I think that it is that sometimes we jump the gun. We get overly zealous about a new concept that hadn't been taught anywhere else. And so we end up taking that enthusiasm and then saying, this is what it is. When it is, in all honesty, that we cannot say for sure this is exactly what is going on. This is exactly what this is talking about here. Because we have a huge issue here with this concept, okay? And the huge issue that we see within this concept is that, first of all, the red heifer would have to be burned. And its ashes would be having to be put within that of the water. Now, the thing about it, though, is that within the Egeret uh, um, to the Ivri, the letter to the Hebrews, we see that it is that Yeshua is called Archoen Hagadol. He is the high priest. 
Now, the thing about it, though, is that if he were a red heifer, and you guys have heard me before go ahead and take on that entire concept, you show us our Passover lamb, and showing that, first of all, the Passover lamb, the, the Torah Shevet Tav itself says the Passover lamb represents a pagan god. So where in the world do we get this concept from, considering that it is that in Luke chapter 22, you know, Yeshua goes and tells his disciples, you know, go and pre- prepare the Pesach, and they have a Seder, and then he's killed the day later. You know, obviously a person must not know when it is the Passover lamb sacrifice if they believe that Yeshua is the Passover lamb, and also they're calling him a, pa- a pagan god by going and saying these things. But we also have other religious history and secular history that go and talk about how it is that the Egyptians worship sheep. And why it is that it says within the book of Bereshit, where it is that um, that Yosef told his family to not say that they were farmers, because farmers were abhorrent in the land of Egypt because they worshipped sheep in the land of Egypt. And so essentially what the children of Israel were doing is they were killing the pagan god that was worshipped in the land of Mishraim. That's essentially what was going on there. And so the thing is that we have to be very careful with these things, because, you know, the, you know, like, again, we can posic ideas. Oh, by the way, the thing I was getting at is the, is the Kohen Haggadol could not be, if, if the Kohen Haggadol was burnt, then he wouldn't be the Kohen Haggadol. He, you know, so we, huge issue there with the book of, of Hebrews, if this were the case. But Hebrews does give us a little bit of a shadow into this, though, however. It says within Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 13, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. Yeshua was burned out, was, was killed outside of the camp. Not burnt, but killed. Therefore, Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his approach. So we see how it is that this is a shadow showing a part of the way that things operate in terms of the forgiveness of sin. But however, we have another issue as well. The red heifer doesn't deal with sin, deals with impurity. Now there's a difference between impurity and sin. Take, for instance, the laws of Nida. When a woman is on, you know, her unclean time of the month and all that other stuff, it is called the unclean time, okay? Um, and so the thing about it, though, is that is the woman in sin for that of, you know, going and menstruating? Is she in sin? You know, is there some sort of, you know, and many people can point Say, well, you know, that has to do with Eve, you know, and all that stuff and, you know, going and, uh, and eating the fruit in the garden and all that stuff. But however, if this were the case, it says within the Tadashebektav that a person cannot be dealt, be, be given the sin of somebody else that has done something before them except for generational iniquity. Now within generational iniquity, it only goes for um, for uh, uh, seven generations. Now, the thing about it, though, is you say, wait a minute here, what about Yeshua taking upon himself our sin? Big difference. And here's the difference. Because of the fact that Yeshua, as mentioned within the book, within the Egeret uh, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, we see that it is that Yeshua is indeed the Kohen HaGadol. Now, the thing that we end up finding within the book of Davarim, or Deuteronomy, I believe it's either chapter 3 or chapter 6, 
we see that Moshe Rabbeinu goes and makes note that he cannot enter into the land of Israel. Many people cite the striking of the rock, but he also gives another instance to read the reason why he can't come in. Because of the fact of the sins of the children of Israel. Okay? Now, this is something that is still practiced within Judaism, and we're going to explain this. <coughs> within Judaism... You probably saw a lot of people um, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week it was, <coughs> you saw that people were going to the grave of the Rebbe, of Rebbe Schneerson. They were going to his grave. Now, the thing with that is that many people would consider Rebbe Schneerson as their Rebbe. You know, he held the title. He was the you know founder, if you will, of Chabad in many ways. He was, he was the one that they thought was Mashiach. And so people would go and pray to the Rebbe. They would go and visit the grave of the Rebbe and all these things because of the fact that through their impurity and all that stuff, if they were, if they, if well, not impurity, but within that of chat, uh, within that of sin, they would end up going and placing their sin upon that of the Rebbe by making him look bad and all that stuff. That's why it is that when people come to me for conversion, I'm very... You know, first of all, I let them know what they're in for. I have to know them for several years before it is that I'll even discuss the concept with them. Because I need to know everything about you. I need to, you know, have dinner with you at my house. You need to be able to be sitting on my floor for four hours every day while it is that we go in medrash and all these things. You know, you got to be prepared for this. You know, I mean, it's it's not something that's a light thing. You know, and it takes years to 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 accomplish. And so there's a major investment within this. But within that... They are one of your Talmud. They are your Talmudim. You know, any person that has a synagogue that it is that they go to and they go to that of their rabbi, a person that they call their rabbi, they have to realize that they are under the halakha that that rabbi has passed down to them. That's important. And so they propagate and have to propagate that halakha from that of their rabbi. And therefore, if a person goes and does something totally stupid, and they end up going and say they screw around on their wife or just something, that comes back around to their rabbi, and God's going to ask them, why is it that you didn't prepare your person good enough to you know, make sure that they didn't go and do something like, like this? This is your fault for allowing this whole thing to happen. You should not have allowed this to happen. And so this is something that's still practiced within that of Judaism here today. So with this concept, we end up seeing that there is a different functionality with that of Moshe Rabbeinu and with that of the Kohen Haggadol and with that of the Mashiach, who is the Kohen Haggadol. Okay? So, you know, that's, you know, the main thing that it is that we end up having going on here. Uh, there's some great stuff from First Fruits of Zion here, and I'll go ahead and read that. And I want you guys to go ahead and put in your questions or statements or arguments or whatever it is that you may have, and I will read those off and address them um, after I go through what it is that we have here from FFOZ. It says in Parshat Chokas, uh, uh, tells the story of the death of the generation that perished in the wilderness, and it presents the Levitical laws of purification in contrast with the dead body. The Messiah offers us hope even in the dead. The mysterious laws of the red heifer hint towards that hope. See, and, and they're very careful here. They say hint towards it, showing that it's a shadow, that it's not, you know, oh, this is definitely what it is, you know. Um, 
according to the Levitical laws of clean and unclean, contrast with the corpse renders a person ceremonially unclean. Simply being under the same roof as a dead body is, is sufficient to contract ritual impurity. Walking over a grave, whether a person knows he has done so or not, makes a person unclean. The state of ritual contamination uh, endangered by a, a direct physical contact with a corpse is, corpse is communicable and contagious. This means that a person made unclean by, by contact with a dead body or human remains transmits a lower level of ritual impurity to people, food, objects he touches. In the legal terminology of the Talmud, the sages refer to a dead body as the father of uncleanliness. In other words, the dead body is the highest source of ritual impurity. Remember, being unclean is not sin, as we mentioned earlier. Judaism regards attempting, attempting the dead and escorting them to a burial as a great mitzvah. Ritual impurity reverence only in regard to entering the sanctuary and handling the holy gifts and, and sacrifices. The Torah explains the pertinent issue. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man, or who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, as it says in Numbers chapter 19, verse 13. God's sanctuary is supposed to be the place of life, not death. He forbids those who are uh, polluted by death from entering into his holy place. The sanctuary on earth reflects the sanctuary above. Thus, as a person cannot enter into the temple on earth until he had cleaned himself from the contamination of the death, a person cannot enter God's eternal habitation above until he has left his mortal flesh behind. Before a person can enter into a heavenly temple, he must transcend his mortal state before entering the he heavenly temple. Yeshua exchanged his mortal flesh for the immortal. Okay, so the thing that we end up seeing with this, and, and, and I'll go ahead and give you guys a little bit of a story here. And you know what? I was going to get you guys questions, but my phone ended up dying, so I'm not going to be able to see your questions. I will address your questions after the broadcast okay so i apologize for that but i'll tell you a little bit of a story here um several years ago i was taking um i was taking a uh uh the the vow of the nazarite um or the vow of the nazir i was taking that vow several years ago and what ultimately ended up happening was a close friend of mine that I had known in college ended up having a little bit too much to drink after work one night and she was up in Asheville and she ended up uh there's this over there in Asheville there's this one exit that is like twisty and turny and it's like you know all it's close to 90 degree turns and the speed limit is like 55 miles an hour and so what happened was Michelle was going a little bit too fast, and plus she had ended up drinking, and her car ended up flipping, and uh, Michelle ended up passing away. Well, I was in the middle of the Nazarite vow, the vow of the Nazir. And so basically what ended up happening is that this was when I was really young in my walk, very young. I didn't realize that it was a great mitzvah to help to go and bury the dead. I... I saw the Torah in a much different way than it is that I do now at many years later after maturing. And I hurt so many friends at that time because they said, you know, we're all going to Michelle's funeral over there in, 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 in Asheville. And, um, 
you know, um, are you going to be there? We're going to meet up afterwards. And I said, I can't. I said, I'm taking the vow of the Nazir and I can't be around a, a dead body. I, 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 can't, I can't do it. And in many ways, the entire idea of in not knowing the difference of purity and, and impurity and relating that to sin or not sin during the time of taking a vow, I realized that I had done great ra, great evil, by not performing the mitzvah of being there. And I saw the Torah at that time as this list of instructions that it is that not only I have to keep, but I have to go and put them on everybody else who's not keeping them. I was, you know, I was basically a one Torah guy at that time. And I did a lot of destruction at that time because of the fact that, first of all, I was very young. I had no, I had, I, I had no expertise in the vow of the Nazir. I had no expertise within that Judaism, and I was very immature, very immature. And so basically what ended up happening was um, uh, my old college roommate, Adam Murray, um, hadn't spoken to me in probably about close to nine years now. Um, I reconnected with my buddy Wes, uh, but there's several others who said, you know, Christopher, because of the fact that you refused to go to go to Michelle's funeral, you know, we don't want anything to do with you. You know, we won't even go to your funeral if something were to happen to you. And what ultimately ended up happening is that I made my faith look like the worst thing on in, in the world to these people. And I didn't even I wasn't even I wasn't even, you know, honoring my friend Michelle who had passed away by 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 doing this. And this is why maturity is so important within that of our walks in Messiah and through that of Torah. You know, we have to be mature. We have to go f- through maturity and we have to uphold the two most important mitzvahs in all things. You know, sometimes it's not about but about being right that brings you great favor from that of Hashem. It's not about being right or doing things to the height of you know, of, of halakha, whether it be your own personal halakha, whether it be rabbinic halakha like myself, or, you know, just, you know, doing it to the strictest way possible. Sometimes it's not about being right. Sometimes being wrong is a better mitzvah. Sometimes going and maintaining shalom and ahavat is a greater mitzvah than anything else. I'll give you another example of this. Probably about six years ago is when I started separating meat and dairy. And it took me a couple of a couple of uh, months to really to really start to separate in all in many ways. Because there were many times that I would screw up, you know, I'd be like, oh, I put half and half of my coffee while I'm eating a turkey sausage biscuit, you know. And, oh, I can't get that kind of turkey sausage biscuit because there's buttermilk in that biscuit, you know. So these are the juggling acts you got to do. And I remembered, you know, and at this point I was starting to mature a little bit, okay, because I, was, I had gone through my conversion. I was finishing up my rabbinic training. And I remember um, it was my brother's wife's um, birthday, and we were meeting at this Mexican restaurant. Now, the guy that was our waiter, he didn't understand very much English, 
you understood that I that I said beef nachos, but everything else just you know he just didn't quite com- comprehend. And I said I I only want the beef on it, no cheese, just just beef. And he goes, oh well, beef nacho, beef 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 nacho, you know. And he's writing down beef nacho, and so basically what ended up happening is it comes out and it's got the cheese on it. And I'm sitting over there going, man. <laughs> and so you're sitting over there, and I'm there with. My brother, his wife, my parents, my um, my uh, brother's wife's parents, you know, and all these people that are associated with that side of the family. I'm sitting over there going, what do I do? Do I send this back? And so I had to sit there and think to myself for just a minute. I said, you know, first of all, this is a minor mitzvah. Now, the thing about it, though, is that I get some weird looks because of the fact that I got a kippah on that I'm wearing a Talit Katan, you know, they, they know that I'm something different. They know I don't eat, you know, uh, you know, unclean animals and all of this stuff. Um, but the thing about it, though, is that if I go and I send this back, then it's really going to make me look out of my mind. It's going to draw people away from my religious expression. It's going to be a bad example for my faith. So what do I do? I said to myself, well, considering that it's not, you know, a little piggy on there, I'm going to eat it. Not going to enjoy it, but I'm going to eat it. And so, you know, these these are the things. You know, I, I think in many ways, by things such as that, it's a greater mitzvah. The question then becomes, well, how far is it that you go? You know, some people could use that as an excuse for something else. Oh, Oh, I could be losing my girlfriend if I don't sleep with her, so I better go and sleep with her. No, sir, that's not one of those instances. That's not uh, the way to fulfill the mitzvahs, you know, in any way, shape, or form. So the thing about it, though, is that we need to grow in maturity. Through growing in maturity, we don't jump to conclusions like Yeshua is indeed the red heifer sacrifice. We are able to better separate the ideas of unclean and sin. And so that's, you know, to the point where it is that we need to go and where it is that we need to get to in our journey. And we need to progress in our journey from that vantage point. I have made many mistakes in the past, you know, through that of my ignorance, through that of my immaturity during those times. But the thing about it, though, is that we learn from them. We move forward. I wish each and every single one of you shalom bracha. Peace and a blessing. I want to thank all of you for joining us here today on this broadcast. And, um, well, uh, shalom bracha. Peace and a blessing. Shalom.